Horatius Bonar, 1808-1889. through 1889. Horatius Bonar was born at Old Broughton, Edinburgh, Scotland, whose brother was Andrew Bonar. Following his education at the University of Edinburgh, he maintained an active and powerful ministry for more than half a century, pastoring churches in that area until his death. Throughout his life, Bonar avoided all sensationalism and was calm, patient, sincere, solemn, and a steady writer. His tracts and books are well-received and well-read in all Christian circles. He wrote well over 600 hymns, of which more than 100 are still in use. Bonar has been described as the Prince of Scottish Hymn Writers. The following lines taken from one of his hymns express Bonar's view of the work of his glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Glory be to him who loved us, washed us from each spot and stain. Glory be to him who bought us, made us kings with him to reign. Glory, glory to the Lamb that once was slain. Followed the Lamb by Horatius Bonar. Introduction. It is for you who are called by the name of Christ that these pages are written, that you may be reminded of what God expects of you and of what your name commits you to. It is a great thing to be a Christian. The very name is a noble one beyond all the noble names of earth. The thing itself is inconceivably blessed and glorious. To say, I am a Christian, is to say, I belong to God's nobility. I am of the peerage of heaven. Much then is expected of you. Do not disgrace the old family name. Do nothing unworthy of him who represents you in heaven and whom you represent on earth. He is faithful to you. Be you so to him. Let men know what a Lord and Master you serve. Be his witnesses. Be his mirrors. Be his living epistles. Let him speak through you to the world. Let your life tell your fellow men what he is and what he is to you. Speak well of him to men as he speaks well of you to God. He has honored you by giving you his name. He has blessed you by conferring on you sonship and royalty and an eternal heritage so that you do justice to his love and magnify his greatness. Let your light shine. Do not obstruct it or hide it or mingle darkness with it. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Isaiah 61. It is the light of love that you have received. Let it shine. It is the light of truth. Let it shine. It is the light of holiness. Let it shine. And if you ask, how am I to get the light and to maintain it in fullness? I answer, Christ shall give you light. Ephesians 5:14. There is light enough in him who is the light of the world. The Lamb is the light thereof. Revelation 21:23. There is no light for man but from the Lamb. 
It is the cross, the cross alone, that lights up a dark soul and keeps it shining so that we walk in light as he is in the light. For God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Be true to him who loved you and washed you from your sins in his own blood. He deserves it at your hands. It is the least that you can do for him. Follow him. His first words to you were, Come to me. You came and found rest. But he adds these two other messages, Abide in me and follow me. You take up your cross as he took up his, and you follow him. You go forth without the camp, bearing his reproach. Luke 9.23, Hebrews 13.13 Through good report and through bad report, you follow him. He draws you, leads you, keeps you, and so you follow him. Your whole life is to be one continuous following of the Lord. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. John 12:26. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. John 10:27. Followers of him who is good is Peter's description of a believing man. 1 Peter 3:13. Such is the proper rendering of the passage, and not of that which is good. And the sure promise is, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 8:12. In following him you will look onward, for he set his face steadfastly to go up to Jerusalem, And when Peter would have hindered his going to the cross, he answered, Get thee behind me, Satan. Matthew 16, 23. You will look upward too, for he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and your posture must be looking upwards, with your affection set on things above. Colossians 3, 1. You must bear the contradiction of sinners, as he did, Hebrews 12:3. You must count the reproach of Christ greater riches than all earthly treasures, Hebrews 11:26. You must keep before your eyes him who was despised and rejected of men, yet who was meek and lowly in heart, whose heart was not haughty, nor his eyes lofty, who did not exercise himself in great matters or in things too high for him, who behaved and quieted himself as a child that is weaned of his mother, whose soul was as a weaned child. Psalm 131, 1 and 2. You began with turning your back upon the world and looking to Jesus. Keep ever thus. Looking to him brought rest to you at first and healed your soul. So, looking to him daily will maintain your rest and perfect your spiritual health. Looking to Jesus will give you light in hours of darkness, will strengthen you in weakness, will comfort you in trouble, will cheer you in the day of weariness. Should your eye ever be withdrawn from the cross, you will be sure to go back, to grow cold, and to forget that you were 
purge from your old sins. Second Peter 1, 9. That cross is life, health, holiness, consolation, strength, joy. Let nothing come between it and you. In the light of that cross, go upon your way steadfastly. For to him on whose path that cross is shining, there can be no abiding darkness. Clouds there may be and eclipses, but that light can never be quenched. That sun can never go down. Remember what you are and what God expects at your hand. Act out your own professions, your own faith, your own prayers. God has had mercy on you, and in his great love he has laid his almighty hand on you that you might be saved. He has sent from above and taken and drawn you out of many waters. Psalm 18:16, Delivering you not only from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1:10, but from a present evil world, Galatians 1, 4. By his gracious power, he has turned you from the error of your ways. And one of the many names by which you are henceforth to be known on earth is that of converts or turned ones. But your turning or conversion is only a beginning, no more. It is not the whole. It is but the first step. You are a disciple, that is, one under teaching. But your teaching, your discipleship, has only commenced. Your life is a book. It may be a volume of larger or smaller size, and conversion is but the title page or the preface. The book itself remains to be written, and your years and weeks and days are its chapters and leaves and lines. It is a book written for eternity. See that it be written well. It is a book for the inspection of enemies as well as friends. Be careful of every word. It is a book written under the eye of God. Let it be done reverently, without levity, yet without constraint or terror. Let me give you a few counsels. You will soon feel your need of them, unless perhaps you are of those who are too wise to learn and are vainly puffed up in their fleshly mind. 1. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It was this grace or free love which first began with you and with which you began. It was this which you at first apprehended or rather which apprehended you. And your special character is that of men who know the grace of God. Colossians 1, 6 Who have tasted that the Lord is gracious. 1 Peter 2, 3 Men on whom God has had compassion, Romans 9:15. Men to whom he has shown his forgiving love, such is your name. This grace of God is your strength, it is your joy, and it is only by abiding in it that you can really live the life of the redeemed. Be strong then in this grace, draw your joy out of it, and beware how you turn to anything else for refreshment or comfort or holiness. Though a believing man, you are still a sinner, a sinner to the last, 
and as such, nothing can suit you but the free love of God. Be strong in it. Remember that you are saved by believing, not by doubting. Be not then a doubter, but a believer. Draw continually on Christ and his fullness for this grace. If at any time you are beguiled away from it, return to it without delay, and betake yourself to it again, just as you did at the first. To recover lost a piece, go back to where you got it at first. Begin your spiritual life all over again. Get at once to the resting place. Where sin has abounded, let grace much more abound. Do not go back to your feelings or experiences or evidences in order to extract from them a renewal of your lost peace. Go straight back to the free love of God. You found peace in it at first. You will find peace in it to the last. This was the beginning of your confidence. Let it be both last and first. This abounding grace, rightly understood, will not make you sin. It will not relax morality or make inconsistency a trifle. It will magnify sin and enhance its evil in your eyes. Your footing or standing in grace, Romans 5, 2, will be the strongest as well as most blessed that you can ever occupy. If your feet be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6, 15, you will be able to stand and to withstand, not otherwise. Remember how Paul and Barnabas urged this upon the Jews of Antioch, persuading them to continue in the grace of God. Acts 13.43, Galatians 5.4, Titus 2.11, 1 Peter 5.12. 2. Keep the conscience clean. When you first saw the cross, and understood the meaning of the blood, you got your conscience purged from dead works, Hebrews 9:14. And it was this cleansing of the conscience that gave you peace. It was not that you ceased to be a sinner or lost the consciousness of being one, but you had found something which pacified your conscience in a righteous way and made you feel towards the law and the lawgiver just as if you had never been guilty. It is by keeping constantly before your eyes this blood of propitiation that you will keep your conscience clean and your soul at peace. It is this blood alone that can wipe off the continual sins that are coming across your conscience and which, if not wiped off immediately, will effectually stain it and cloud your peace. You know how the steel of the finest sword may be rusted by a drop of water, yet if the water is not allowed to remain, but is wiped away as soon as it falls, it harms not the steel, and no rust ensues. If, however, through neglect or otherwise, the water is allowed to remain, rust will follow, destroying both the edge and brightness of the weapon." 
so it is with sin. The moment it falls upon the conscience, the blood must be applied, else dimness and doubting will be the consequence. Remember, it is the blood, the blood alone, that can remove these. If when you sin, you do not go at once to this and be washed and pardoned, but betake yourself to anything else first, you will only make bad worse. If you shrink from going directly to Christ and His blood, if you try to slip gradually near in some roundabout way, as if you hoped by the time you reached the fountain to get quit of part of the sin, so as not to be quite so bad as at the moment when you committed it, you will not cleanse the conscience, but leave the burden and the stain just where they were. If you say, but I am so ruffled with the sin, so cast down and ashamed at the thought of what I have done, that I dare not go at once to the blood, I must pray or read myself into a better frame, and then I will go and be washed. You are denying God's method of purging the conscience. You are undervaluing the blood. You are reverting to your old ways of self-righteousness, and you are preventing the restoration of lost peace, for you are putting something between your conscience and the blood. Keep, then, the conscience clean by continual application to the blood, and you will find that this, instead of encouraging you to sin, will make you more ashamed and afraid of it than if you had got quit of it in some self-righteous way of your own. What more likely to make you fear and hate it than being compelled to go with it constantly to God and deal with Him directly about its pardon? Cultivate a tender conscience, but beware of a diseased and morbid one. The former takes an honest, straightforward view of truth or duty and acts accordingly. The latter, overlooking what is broad and great, is always on the hunt for trifles, quibbling and questioning about things of no importance. Thus, a stiff Christianity is produced, an artificial religion, very unlike the erect but easy walk of one who possesses the liberty of Christ. Be natural, be simple, be easy in word and manner, lest you seem as one acting a part. Cherish a free spirit, a large heart, and a clear conscience, like the apostle, who though he pitied the weaker brethren, 1 Corinthians 8, 9-13, refused to allow his liberty in Christ to be narrowed by another man's morbid conscience. Certainly beware of little sins, but be sure that they are sins. Omit no little duties, but see that they are duties. A tender and tranquil conscience does not make a man crotchety or troublesome, far less morose and supercilious. It makes him frank, cheerful, brotherly, and obliging in the family, in the shop, in the congregation, in the marketplace, whether he be poor or rich, so that others cannot help seeing how pleasantly he goes 
out and comes in eating his meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Acts 2.46 And so adorning the doctrine of God his Savior in all things. Titus 2.10 3. Hold fast that which you have received. Beware of changeableness. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. It is a bad sign of a man when he is frequently shifting his ground and adopting new opinions. It is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Hebrews 13:9. And it is good to hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Hebrews 3:14. The righteousness of God was that which you began with, and you found it an ample covering and a sufficient resting place. God's reckoning your sin to Christ and his righteousness to you was joy and peace when you found the burden of your grief too great for you to bear. Never let go your hold of this truth. Continue to rejoice in this blessed exchange. Let the righteousness of the righteous one be your daily covering. When a man gets wearied of what is old and is always catching hold of what is new, it looks as if he had been beguiled from the simplicity that is in Christ and had lost his relish for the things of Christ. Nay, almost as if he had never been rooted and grounded in love. Love of novelties has been the shipwreck of many a soul. Some new thing is the craving, not of the men of Athens only, but of many in the church of God. They are restless and are carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. Old truths get tame and stale. Ephesians 4.14 Hebrews 13.9 1 John 4.1 Take care of itching ears. 2 Timothy 4.3 And of heaping to yourselves teachers. 2 Timothy 4.3 Along with this, we often see the love of controversy, which is almost equally pernicious, even when it takes the side of truth. The man who likes it better to be fighting about his food than eating it is likely to remain lean enough. Disputes, like offenses, must sometimes come, but like David's sharp razor, Psalm 52.2, they work deceitfully and are difficult to handle safely. They often eat out love, even when they do not destroy faith, yet cleave to the truth. Nay, if error does assail you, contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints, that which ye have already hold fast, that no man take thy crown. Satan, either as the prince of darkness or as an angel of light, resist steadfast in the faith. Don't dally with error and don't tamper with truth. Buy the truth. Proverbs 23:23. at any price. But sell it not for all the gold and silver on earth. And while you are on your guard against errors and changes, beware of excitement. The mind that was in Christ is calm, not restless, 
and ruffled. The work of the Spirit is to calm, not to excite, and the tendency of the gospel, as well as of all Bible truth, is to calm, not to agitate. Do not use strong language and startling phrases and wild images which are fitted to make others shudder. The Spirit of God is not in the fire or the earthquake or the hurricane, but in the still, small voice. Beware of sensationalism, either in religious experience or in the statement of facts or in the exposition of truth. That which is merely emotional or sentimental not only dies down, but often leaves insensibility, if not a seared conscience, behind it. The Master was always calm. Calmness is true strength, or at least it is the result of strength. As an overpowering gale keeps down the waters over which it is rushing, so true intensity of spiritual feeling does not show itself by loud vociferations, but by the depth and solemnity of the calm which it diffuses through the soul and utters in brief spoken words of tranquil simplicity. Yet do not believe all that you hear from worldly men or half-hearted Christians about the excitement attending revivals. Conversion is not excitement. Zeal is not excitement. Love for souls is not excitement. Trembling under the word is not excitement. And even if there be some excitement at revival meetings, better that it should be so than that souls should perish. There is more excitement in the theater and the ballroom or the concert or the political meeting or the parliamentary election or even what is called the quiet evening party. Yet men do not complain of these nor get angry at them. By all means, be calm. But don't suppose that all excitement is sin or hypocrisy. Excitement is not good, but some things are worse than even this. A dull and sleepy Christianity is worse, much worse. A stiff and frozen formalism is worse, much worse. An easy-minded worldly religion is worse, much worse. It is a good thing to be zealously affected always, Galatians 4.18, and to be fervent in spirit, Romans 12.11. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might, Ecclesiastes 9.10. If it is worth doing at all, do it well. Throw your soul into it. Do it heartily, Colossians 3.23. Four, deal honestly with yourselves. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. First Corinthians 11.31 That is, if we would but faithfully judge ourselves, we should be spared the infliction of divine chastisements. 
but we are not faithful to our own souls. We deal with a slack hand in things pertaining to our own sins and let things go unreproved and uncondemned in ourselves, which we are sharp enough to discover and rebuke in others. Deal honestly with every part of your daily life in regard to duty or trial or sacrifice or self-denial or forbearance with others. Beware of one-sidedness or self-partiality in truth, in experience, or in action. Remember that all things have two sides. A tender conscience and a well-balanced mind will deal with both. Deal honestly with conscience in all things, small and great, spiritual or temporal. Deal honestly with the church of God and with the brethren. Deal honestly with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Strange that in spiritual things we should try to cheat ourselves as well as others, yet so it is. We are loath to take the worst view of our own case, to think evil of ourselves, to act the stern censor in regard to our own omissions and commissions. We have few excuses for others, many for ourselves. Evils that seem monstrous in others are trifles in us. When looking at others, we use a microscope at ourselves. We either shut our eyes or put on a veil. This dishonest dealing is very pernicious. This covering of sin is destructive both of peace and progress. And when we remember that all dishonest dealing with ourselves is in reality dishonest dealing with God, the evil is seen to be the more hateful and the more inexcusable. Hosea 11:12. Be honest and upright before God and man with your own conscience, with the blood of sprinkling, and with that law which is holy and just and good. Don't flatter your own heart, nor tell a lie to conscience, nor think to deceive God. Psalm 101.7, Jeremiah 9.6, Jeremiah 17.9, Galatians 6.3, James 1.22, 1 John 1.8.5. Keep company with God and with the people of God. Intimacy with God is the very essence of religion and the foundation of discipleship. It is in intercourse with Father, Son, and Spirit that the most real parts of our lives are lived, and all parts that are not lived in fellowship with Him in whom we live and move and have our being are unreal, untrue, unsuccessful, and unsatisfying. The understanding of doctrine is one thing, and intimacy with God is another. They ought always to go together, but they are often seen asunder, and when there is the former without the latter, there is a hard, proud, hollow religion. Get your teaching from God. Job 36.22 Jeremiah 23.30 Take your doctrine from His lips. Learn truth upon your knees. Beware of opinions and speculations. They become idols and nourish pride of intellect. They furnish no food to the soul. 
They make you sap less and heart less. They are like winter frost work on your window pane, shutting out the warm sun. Let God be your companion, your bosom friend, your instructor, your counselor. Take him into the closet with you, into the study, into the shop, into the marketplace, into the railway carriage, into the boat. When you make a feast and call guests, invite him as one of them. He is always willing to come, and there is no company like his. When you are in perplexity and are taking advice from friends, let him be one of your friends in council. When you feel lonely, make him the companion of your solitude. And if you are known to be one given to the divine companionship, you will be saved from much idle and wasteful society and conversation. You will not feel at home with worldly men, nor they with you. You will not choose the half-and-half Christian, or the formalist, or the servant of two masters for your friend, nor will any of these seek your fellowship when thrown into worldly society from your business or your relationships. As you may sometimes be, do not cease to be the Christian, nor try to make excuses for the worldliness of those with whom you are obliged to associate, for that is just making excuses for yourself in associating with them. Do not try to make yourself or them believe that they are religious when they are not, but show them whose disciples you are, not necessarily in words, but by a line of conduct more expressive and efficacious than words. Do not conform to the world in order to please men or to save yourself from their taunt or jest. Be not afraid to ask a blessing at meals, or to have family worship, or to enter into religious conversation, because a worldly man is present. Keep constant company with the great God of heaven and earth, and let every other companionship be regulated by his. Go where you please, if you can take him with you. Go nowhere if he cannot be admitted, or if you are obliged for the time to conceal or disguise your divine discipleship. When Joseph went down to Egypt, he took the young child with him, Matthew 2.21. So wherever you go, take the young child with you. Beware of declension in prayer. Whenever you feel the closet becoming a dull place, you may be sure something is wrong. Backsliding has begun. Go straight to God that he may heal it. Hosea 14.4 Do not trifle with it, nor resort to other expedients to relieve the dullness, such as shortening the time or getting some lively religious books to take off the weariness. Go at once to the great quickener with the cry, Quicken us, and we will call on thy name. Psalm 80:18. Beware of going through prayer in a careless or perfunctory way, like a hireling doing his work in order to get done with it. Pray in the Holy Ghost, Jude 20. Pray without ceasing. 
pray with honest fervor and simple faith as men who really want what they ask for and expect to get it all. Few things tend more to deaden the soul, to harden the heart, to drive out spirituality than cold, formal prayer. It will eat as doth a canker, dread it and shun it. Do not mock God by asking what you don't want or by pretending to desire what you don't care for. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. First Peter 4, 7 Be much alone with God. Do not put him off with a quarter of an hour morning and evening. Take time to get thoroughly acquainted. Converse over everything with him. Unbosom yourself wholly, every thought, feeling, wish, plan, doubt to him. He wants converse with his creatures. Shall his creatures not want converse with him? He wants not merely to be on good terms with you, if one may use man's phrase, but to be intimate. Shall you decline the intimacy and be satisfied with mere acquaintance? What? Intimate with the world, with friends, with neighbors, with politicians, with philosophers, with naturalists? or with poets, but not with God? That would look ill indeed. Folly to prefer the clay to the potter, the marble to the sculptor, this little earth and its lesser creatures to the mighty maker of the universe, the great all and in all. Do not shrink from being alone. Much of a true man's true life must be so spent. David Brainyard Thus writes, my state of solitude does not make the hours hang heavy upon my hands. Oh, what reason of thankfulness have I on account of this retirement? I find that I do not, and it seems I cannot, live a Christian life when I am abroad, and cannot spend time in devotion, in conversation and serious meditation, as I should do. These weeks that I am obliged now to be from home in order to learn the Indian tongue are mostly spent in perplexity and barrenness without much relish of divine things and I feel myself a stranger at the throne of grace for want of a more frequent and continued retirement. Do not suppose that such retirement for divine converse will hinder work. It will greatly help it. Much private fellowship with God will give you sevenfold success. Pray much if you would work much. And if you want to work more, pray more. Luther used to say, when an unusual press of business came upon him, I must pray more today. Be like him in the day of work or trial. Do not think that mere working will keep you right or set you right. The watch won't go till the spring is mended. Work will do nothing for you till you have gone to God for a working heart. Trying to work yourself into a better frame of feeling is not only hopeless but injurious. You say, I want to feel more and to love more. It is well. But you can't work yourself into these I do not say to anyone who feels his coldness, go and work. Work 
if done heartlessly, will only make you colder. You must go straight to Jesus with that cold heart and warm it at his cross. Then work will be at once a necessity, a delight, and a success. 5. Study the Bible. Do not skim it or read it, but study it, every word of it. Study the whole Bible, Old Testament and New. Not your favorite chapters merely, but the complete Word of God from beginning to end. Do not trouble yourself with commentators. They may be of use if kept in their place, but they are not your guides. Your guide is the interpreter, the one among a thousand, Job 33:23 who will lead you into all truth and keep you from all error. Not that you are to read no books but the Bible. All that is true and good is worth the reading, if you have time for it. And all, if properly used, will help you in your study of the Scriptures. A Christian does not shut his eyes to the natural scenes of beauty spread around him. He does not cease to admire the hills or plains or rivers or forests of earth because he has learned to love the God that made them. Nor does he turn away from books of science or true poetry because he has discovered one book truer, more precious and more poetical than all the rest together. Besides, the soul can no more continue in one posture than the body the eye must be relieved by variety of objects, and the limbs by motion. So must the soul by change of subject and position. All truth is precious, though not all divine. In so far, then, as time allows or opportunity presents, let us seek and search out by word concerning all things that are done under heaven. But let the Bible be to us the book of books, the one book in all the world whose every wisdom is truth and whose every verse is wisdom. In studying it, be sure to take it for what it really is, the revelation of the thoughts of God, given us in the word of God. Were it only the book of divine thoughts and human words, it would profit little, for we never could be sure whether the words really represented the thoughts. Nay, we might be quite sure that man would fail in his words when attempting to embody divine thoughts, and that, therefore, if we have only man's words, that is, man's translation of the divine thoughts, we shall have one of the poorest and most incorrect of all books, just as we should have in the case of Homer or Plato done into English by a first year's schoolboy. But knowing that we have divine thoughts embodied in divine words through the inspiration of an unerring translator, we sit down to the study of the heavenly volume, assured that we shall find in all its teachings the perfection of wisdom, and in its language the most accurate expression of that wisdom that the finite speech of man can utter. 
Every word of God is as perfect as it is pure. Psalm 19.7, Psalm 12.6. Let us read and reread the scriptures, meditating on them day and night. They never grow old. They never lose their sap. They never run dry. Though it is right and profitable, as I have said, to read other books, if they are true and good, yet beware of reading too many. Do not let man's book thrust God's book into a corner. Do not let commentaries smother the text, nor let the true and the good shut out the truer and the better. Especially beware of light reading, Sean, novels. They are the literary curse of the age. They are to the soul what ardent spirits are to the body. If you be a parent, keep novels out of the way of your children. But whether you be a parent or not, neither read them yourself, nor set an example of novel reading to others. Don't let novels lie on your table or be seen in your hand, even in a railway carriage. The light reading for the rail has done deep injury to many a young man and woman. The light literature of the day is working a world of harm, vitiating the taste of the young, innervating their minds, unfitting them for life's plain work, eating out their love of the Bible, teaching them a false morality, and creating in the soul an unreal standard of truth and beauty and love. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.